Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We're grateful to have you listen in. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I hope you guys have been doing well. And we've been going through um, our sermon series on Acts since the end of Lent, since Easter Sunday. And without exception, we are continuing through the book of Acts. Instead of moving into Acts chapter 12, we are actually picking up where we left off in chapter 11. So if you guys can open up your Bibles with me. To Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. We'll be reading from here to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Acts is after John. I believe it's before Romans. I'll be reading from the ESV. You guys can be reading from whatever you see fit. This is the word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, or the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? Abba, we ask for mercy. We ask for more and more of your grace to be able to understand what it is that you are speaking out to us. Abba, we come before you after a long and weary week. God, some of us may have stayed close to you. Some of us may have felt distant from you. Some of us may have done things to please you, and some of us may have not. But God, we come before you just as we are, knowing that you love us the same. Just the same. So Father, hide me behind your cross as you speak your word to your congregation god that every single person right now that the holy spirit would fall on every single person that is with you god and for those who have yet to open their hearts up to you lord i pray for more and more of your spirit to move in our hearts take us to the next level with you holy spirit so guard our hearts guide us god we love you We give you all the glory and all the honor. Be magnified in this service. And may only your words be spoken forth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today we're going to be continuing through Acts chapter 11. I originally thought that I would be going through Acts chapter 12. um, But God really tugged on my heartstrings about Acts chapter 11 verse 19. Because... Oftentimes, we talk a lot about big things that happen to us, but we might gloss over the parts in our lives that are normal or mundane. I don't know how many of you guys are living in an eventful life right now, but in the midst of quarantine, as we adjust to our new normal, a lot of us might be experiencing more mundane, routine schedules than others, than other times in our lives. 
Or some of us, like I know I'm going through something new happens in my life every day. Some of us might be experiencing the most eventful and turbulent time of your life right now. Whatever it may be, God is shedding light on something within the church that might be considered more mundane, but is fundamental to our life. So in the midst of quarantine, as we are wrestling with church, as we are wrestling with God, in the midst of our fears, our anxieties about the future, our insecurities about maybe our what we find our stability and security in, I want you guys to really think about what the church is as we continue through. Today's sermon title is Encouragement and Solidarity. The title is Encouragement and Solidarity. And I'm the main idea of today's passage, I just want to tell you guys off the bat so you guys can keep it in your mind. The church, by nature, stands in encouragement to one another and stands in solidarity. One more time, the church by nature stands in encouragement with one another and in solidarity. So this context, the context of this, the context of this passage is that various people were in the midst of persecution after the death of Stephen. So Stephen was martyred, he was executed, and then upon the execution of Stephen, by the hand of Saul, many people were being brought into different places, uh, many people were being persecuted by the Roman government. And so the disciples of Jesus Christ scattered. And then we see in chapter 9, Saul comes to meet God, and he becomes changed by God. But persecution, although it was started by Saul, it still continues out of the hands of Saul. And the Jews even try to kill Saul. So this is the persecution that is still happening. Some of the greatest persecution, and I mean, it is the first persecution, but it's some of the greatest persecution the church has ever seen, where people are being killed on all ends, um, arrested on all ends. And in the midst of this persecution, everybody was spread out, and they went to different people. Many of those who were spread out preached the gospel to more Jews so that Jews would be saved. But others preached the gospel to Greeks. Now, Jewish people are exclusive. This is something that we've been talking about for a while. Jewish people are exclusive, so naturally, they don't think about sharing the gospel to non-Jews. Because by nature, Jews are the chosen ones, right? But some Jews decided to preach the gospel to Greeks. And what the church wasn't fully aware of as a whole at the time is that the gospel is not just for Jews, but it's for every nation and every tongue. And so the hand of the Lord was upon the Greeks as the gospel was being preached to them. And many were coming to Christ. So the church of Jerusalem stumbles upon this. Literally the chapter before, Peter is still, Peter is, he experiences that vision of like food falling and every nation and every tongue is good to go in terms of believing in the name of Jesus. Um, and so this is still something that the church is coming to awareness of, but Peter was in awareness of it. And some of the great, the highest um, preachers, the highest apostles, they were in awareness of it. And so when the church of Jerusalem hears about the fact that many Greeks are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, they send a name, a man named Barnabas. Barnabas. When I first heard the name, when I first heard this name, I thought of Barnacle Boy. I was like, this is a really disgusting sounding name, Barnabas. Um, but the meaning of this name is actually really encouraging. Well, it's very important because the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. And Barnabas was not just a church leader. He was no regular church leader. He was a mobilizer. He was an activator. He was a missionary. And he was very, very, very good at what God had assigned of him to do, particularly to exhort and encourage the church. So they send Barnabas, a Hellenistic Jew, a diaspora Jew. They send Barnabas. So Barnabas goes... He goes, and it says in scripture that when he goes, he rejoices upon seeing the grace of God. 
This is significant but overlooked. See, when Barnabas goes to a different area that is not a Jewish area, Barnabas should be feeling levels of feelings of superiority, feelings of not wanting to mix with them. But what Barnabas experiences, he sees people that are different from him, that look different from him, and he sees not their differences, but the grace of God upon that church. And he rejoices and encourages people to stay in their devotion. He encourages people to stay in their devotion. Now I want to break down the original language of this a little bit because it is very important. Like this should not be overlooked that Barnabas was able to go into a church of people that were different from him and see the grace of God and rejoice and encourage them to stay in their devotion. But I want to I want to zero in a little bit on the words encouragement and devotion. Now the first thing about encouragement, actually I'll talk about devotion first and then and then encouragement. The thing about devotion. The thing about Barnabas encouraging people to stay in the faith of God, the word, the exact word was devotion. Barnabas was encouraging other people's devotion. Now, what is the significance of this word devotion? The word devotion meant in this original language, what it means is the purpose of one's will. I'm going to say that one more time. The word devotion meant the purpose of one's will, the purpose of one's will to believe in the crucified, risen, and exalted Jesus. The purpose of somebody's willpower to believe in the crucified, risen, and exalted Jesus. The reason for their staying in the faith was devotion. That's what that's what it's called. The reason for anybody's continual cuz it's not it's not that like if I step into a pool then I'm in a pool for a short amount of time, but I can step right out of it. But if I step into a pool and stay there, that's a different thing. I might have I might step into a pool because maybe my feet need to be cooled. And then I'll jump right back out, right? Like, especially in the beach, the waves get a little bit crazy. You're like, all right, this is my time to bounce. There's always a different reason for why somebody might dip their feet and why somebody might stay in a pool. Do you understand what I'm getting at? There's a reason for why I dip my feet in a pool, but the reason for why I stay in the pool is different from the reason for why I dip my feet in the pool. So many of us might have had different reasons of being saved. But the reason for why we become saved and the reason for why we stay in the faith are often different. Maybe we started to encounter God because of curiosity. But we don't stay in faith because of curiosity. Once we've encountered the living God, we stay because the love of God has transformed our hearts by the spirit to be renewed to love him in return. It speaks the word devotion in and of itself speaks to a very different thing than salvation. The word devotion in and of itself speaks to a greater calling, a greater calling and a a greater longevity or endurance of faith. So what what exactly is Barnabas encouraging people to do? Barnabas is encouraging people to stay in their devotion to God. He's encouraging people to stay rooted in the faith. And the word encouraging is also very important. Because the word encouraging in this passage is an ing. It's written in the imperfect tense, which means that it's still ongoing. It doesn't stop. There's no specific point for when it began and there's no specific point where it ended. He continually, it's a continuous 
not an imperfect, a continuous verb, which means that it is continually happening. So even Barnabas' encouragement is not, I encourage you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then I bounce. But the encouragement of Barnabas was continuous. And he wasn't encouraging people to believe in Jesus. He was, in, he was encouraging their devotion to stay truthful and consistent with the gospel. So upon meeting, if we backtrack a little bit, upon meeting these people that he's not normally supposed to talk to, and seeing the grace of God instead of how different they are from him, instead of seeing with his eyes, he sees with his heart the grace of God in this group. And he rejoices and he encourages them constantly to stay fixed on God. So that was the nature of what Barnabas did as a brother. The nature of what Barnabas did as a brother and as a preacher was to encourage the devotion of Christ. And it was also a natural reaction to in his spirit to other people receiving the name of Jesus as well. It's, it wasn't that Barnabas was, was being manufactured. It wasn't that he was being artificial in his encouragement and, and in, his, in his joy. It was a natural reaction to seeing people saved. Regardless of what skin tone, regardless of what background, regardless of what faith or religion or whatever it might have been that they were encountering and being a part of before, when he saw men and women receiving the name of Jesus, he rejoiced and encouraged them to stay in the faith. And it was something that he did as a preacher, but he was a preacher, but it wasn't necessarily something that he did as a preacher. See, as a preacher, he preaches. As a preacher, I give you a sermon. And it says here that Barnabas was full of faith and that many came to believe in God through Barnabas' preaching. But this was different from preaching. This was something that Barnabas did, not even just as a leader, not even just as a preacher, but as a brother in the faith. Now, I also want to zero in a little bit on Barnabas being full of faith. The word faith, full is plureo, and what, 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 what that means is that you are, it is literally in relationship, like in Korean, there are different words that signify different things, like, oh, like in, like there are different words for pairs, right? Like a pair of shoes, like a bushel of, Sprigs, um, <laughs> a school of fish. There are different words that are used for different verbs to describe groups. In the same way, the word plureo was a word that was directly synonymous with something being filled with the brim, almost like a jar being filled with the brim of water. It's a very, it's a very um, artistic, not an artistic, but it's a very visual verb. So Barnabas was filled to the brim as a jar is filled with water to the spirit and faith. And faith here can be described as a dynamic and motivating way of understanding the relationship of God to one's own world. So faith as Barnabas had it was a dynamic and motivating way of us understanding the relationship of God to one's own world. And he was filled to the brim with faith. And a large number of people were brought to the Lord as he preached the gospel being filled to the brim with a dynamic and motivating way of understanding the relationship of God to one's own world. Other than the fact that Barnabas was a stranger and of different ethnicity, why is this significant? Why is Barnabas's nature of being filled with faith and encouraging people to stay in their devotion sometimes, or in this passage, more descriptive than the words that he preached and the ministry that he did in and of itself? Why is Barnabas being filled with faith and Barnabas encouraging others to give their devotion more important? Barnabas being filled with faith 
reveals to us what we need to be as Christians. In order for the message of the gospel to be compelling. In order for the message of the gospel to be compelling to each and every person here. If, if anybody, random, if a random person hears you preach the gospel to them. If it's a random person that you don't know. That you might not live in alignment to the gospel. Or might not choose to be filled with faith. It is hard to receive the gospel from them. Some of us have said this about pastors past. That they are half-hearted. You're vocalizing a very innate. A very innate doubt that comes when the carrier of the message of Jesus Christ has not been filled with a dynamic and motivating way of understanding the relationship of God to one's own world. Now that is not just on us, that's on God to give us greater faith. But it also takes a working out of faith as God works in us for his glory. That's what it says in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 says, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling as God works in us to bring himself glory. And Barnabas, as an active believer who actively lived out the gospel, lived out his devotion in the way that God had assigned to him, he was filled with this dynamic, motivating way to understand the relationship of God to his environment. And when people saw Barnabas, they saw that he was filled with faith and that his faith was real. And the second thing that we see here is that Barnabas encounters people that are different from him, but he sees not their differences, but the grace of God. He rejoices and he encourages them continually to stay in the faith, encourages them continually to live out their devotion to God. Live out their devotion, their devotion as the purpose of one's will to believe in the crucified, risen and exalted Jesus Christ. That was Barnabas's main job as a brother. We are no different than the Greeks. We are all, I'm looking at every single person that's in front of me and in here and no one here is Jewish, which means we are all Gentiles. We are all completely Gentiles. For somebody like Barnabas to mix with some people like us is unheard of. And yet Barnabas, he comes in and he rejoices and he encourages people to stay in their purpose of their will to believe. Stay, stay faithful to endure and to continue to persevere. Yes, we might have sunk our feet in the water of the gospel. Maybe because our lives were disappointing and maybe because there were so many things that were happening in our lives that led us to God. Or maybe God just showed up or maybe we grew up in the faith and one day the gospel became clear and so we dipped our feet. But Barnabas as a stranger, but a brother, his natural reaction was to encourage the church to stay in the faith. How many of us do that for one another right now? If Barnabas' primary function as a brother upon going to Jerusalem, to outside of Jerusalem, to make sure that the church is staying strong, as Bar- if Barnabas as a stranger, but as a brother, shows up on the doorstep of a church, and the first thing he does is rejoices in, uh, rejoices in the fact that God is in that church, and then the second thing he does is encourage people to stay in the faith. And if that is Barnabas' primary function as a brother that is filled with faith, that is working out their salvation with fear and trembling, how many of us in the church right now live that out? Do we see Christianity the way Barnabas lives it out? Some of us, we gather and our primary function in each other's lives might not be to encourage one another to our devotion. 
to remind one another, shake one another up to our devotion. Hey, are you staying in faith today? Not for the sake of being worth righteous, but just for the sake of living out and working out our salvation with fear and trembling together. If that is the primary function of somebody in the body of Christ, in relationship to other people's faith, when encountering other people's faith, that might be the very thing that North Boston is lacking right now in the pandemic and the very reason why a lot of us are feeling dry. Because many of us dipped our feet in the water. But the reason for why we dipped our feet in the water is different from the reason why we are standing in the gospel. And we need to live out and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need our faiths to be challenged. We need to grow in a dynamic, active way of understanding our relationship between God and us and our relationship between God and the world. Now, this is a very interesting definition of faith. We know that the, the, the traditional, like Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence in things not seen. And yes, that is the nature of faith. But faith in and of itself, as we work out our salvation, is letting God into our lives and letting the foundation of the gospel be the reason why we stand in this world. Our security, our confidence, and our assurance is the nature of faith. The nature of faith is an assurance and a confidence in things that we do not see and of things hoped for. But faith in and of itself in practice is an active way of understanding the relationship between the world and God and understanding where we stand as we work out our salvation. And in light of that, that internal work that we do all individually, we motivate and we encourage, not motivate, we encourage one another actively and continually to stay. Because even if we don't perceive faith right now in our lives, even if we don't perceive with our own eyes the work of God in our lives right now, even if some of us might be wondering this very moment, where is God in the midst of everything? It does not change the sheer fact that we need to say, because God is still real. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Salvation is all real. These things are all existing. Judgment is real, but not our judgment, the judgment of God. These things still exist whether or not we perceive it. And a primary function of the church is to exhort one another to faith, to stay in our devotion, to stay in the purpose of our will. So it's a very descriptive understanding of what a member of the body of Christ should do. And I believe that's why, even as Luke writes this, he hones in more on who Barnabas was and what he did as a person, rather than his ministry and his preaching. Because what was actually the sermon of Barnabas' life wasn't the words that came out of his mouth, but the way that he lived his life. Ministry, you don't have to stand in front of a pulpit and grab a mic to do ministry. So that's why Barnabas is significant. But and, and the church stands in encouragement this way. But we see here that that's not all. See, after Barnabas brings many people to Christ, he goes and he looks for Saul in Tarsus, which means that it was not which means that it was easy to it was easy to it was easy to um, trace Saul back to Tarsus, but it was hard to find Saul in Tarsus, probably because of ministry. Um, and Barnabas goes and finds Saul and brings him to Antioch, which means that Saul had to leave his ministry in Cilicia. And Barnabas comes, 
He goes to Saul. He goes an eight days walk. It's an eight days walk from where Barnabas was to Saul. Eight days walking. And he goes and he takes Saul. And he brings Saul to Antioch. And they, they do very, very fundamental Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47 stuff with the church in Antioch for a year. Preaching, breaking bread, devotion to prayer. Why does Barnabas take Saul with him? Saul is a very talented theologian because of his Jewish education. Not only that, he was a gifted missionary already, having done mission work for six years in his neighboring region. So Barnabas takes Saul and he goes to Antioch. And they preach for a year. And Luke notes something very interesting here. He notes something very interesting here. After he defines who Barnabas is and the nature of Barnabas's brotherhood, he, he notes Barnabas and Saul going to Antioch and then notes that that is where the term Christian was coined. Now the wording of this sentence is very interesting. The term Christian was coined. When my mama named me, all right, she had just given birth and the nurses gave her a book, a baby's book of Christian names. Just as they did to my older sisters before. Now with my older sisters, my mom was <laughs> not as diligent in looking for a name. And <laughs> she couldn't make it past the A's. Um, so my older sister's names are Amanda and Amy, um, partially because she couldn't make it past the A's. So I thought, this is a great A name. Oh, that's a great A name. And that's how my older sisters, I really hope they're not watching this. <laughs> All right. Anyways, um, <laughs> sorry, just, whew. oh God, Lenny, please. Um, but yes, that's. Partially what? Not part. Obviously, they wanted to name. She wanted to name them that, but also she couldn't make it past these, and so those were her favorite a names, and and so that's why. But I was I was born later, much later, um, and I was born in the midst of a lot of hardship in my mama's life, and I mean she she was in a lot of hardship then too, but more so when she gave birth to me than them, and so she took great care. Just very, like, as, as her contractions were going, she just screwed, like, going through every single name. That's why my name is, is in the J's. Because she went through A to Z, and then she went back to the middle, and she liked the name Jane, and that's why I'm J. But my sisters are both AA. Um, and so, when my mama named me, she went through very, very thoroughly this book of baby names. And she was very, very intentional about the way that she named me. And when she named me, the verb is that my mama named me because my mom was the one to name me. And that's very significant in my life because my mom is my rock. And so for me, I have a Korean name, but I consider my American name more important to me because my mom named my American name and other people named my Korean name. So I don't really like that as much. And that's why I, I identify with my American name. That's why even though I have a Korean name, my parents still call me Jane at home because Jane can be a Korean name as well. So naming is very significant. My name means gift from God. I don't know what your names mean, um, but my name means gift from God. And my mom named that very intentionally during a time of a lot of hardship in her life that I had come and that I had given her reason to keep going. And so she called me, she named me on that basis, which is why I hold the name very dearly to my heart. I didn't always like the name Jane. There was a time period in my life where I really disliked my name. But I've come to really love it because of the circumstances around how I was named that way. And it's something that is very personal to my life. Because my namesake is gift from God and because my identity, a lot of people identify me 
with the name Jane. And it's become a part of my identity. It's become the main way that people call me, right? And so that's why my name is significant to me. I don't know why your names are significant to y'all. Everybody has a different way of how they were named. Uh, but that's why my name is significant to me. Now in this passage, it says that the, the terminology Christians were coined, which means that the people who named Christians as Christians were not Christians. So it was not the church that decided to call themselves Christians, but it were people on the outside that decided to call Christians Christians. Now I've talked about this before, but the the back I-A-N is actually very important, even in the Greek language. If you're from Korea, you're called Korean. If you're from China, you're called Chinese. If you're from Spain, you're Spanish. If you're from France, you're French. If you're from England, you're English. If you're from America, you're American. And there are ways to change the back of the name of the of the country. You add this, you add this suffix or, or the, the word itself changes to denote that that person is of that ethnicity. The terminology IAN denotes citizenship. It denotes almost an ethnic term. And it also denotes that we are like little Christ. The word Christian is almost like little duplicates of Christ. So it's like little Christ. That's that's like a more wooden translation. And so this understanding of Christians, instead of instead of me being Korean and having that back that that suffix attached to my country, Christians had that suffix, that ethnic identity suffix attached to Christ. What the Romans were getting at when the Romans, because it was the Romans that started calling the church Christians, what the Romans were getting at was that the church was so different from the rest of the world that they could not even be considered an ethnicity. It was almost as though the church were their own thing their own culture, their own society, their own norms, their own ways of life. And it was so different from the rest of the world that the Romans started calling them Christians with almost that ethnic identity connotation. Ethnicity was very important at the time, y'all. For example, Jews didn't mix with non-Jews. Ethnicity was very important. Where you held citizenship was key. It was critical in the Roman Empire. If you, there was a very big difference in enjoyment of rights between people who are Romans and people who are non-Romans. So in that sense, we have to understand that the significance of Christianity was very critical. And the significance of being called Christians was very critical in the sense that Christians were their own culture. And that that identification came in lives like Barnabas. That when Barnabas's life was that different, they held that different identity. They held that different name. And it wasn't given to them by themselves. It was given to them from the outside world. Barnabas and Saul's ministry in Antioch for a year, for one year, led to this coining. The church was so different, it was led to that coining. This is very interesting, and I want us to come back to this, okay? But I also want us to get into the fact that after being coined Christians, a famine was prophesied. So prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, Right? And they started, and one, one prophet in particular prophesied that there was going to be a famine everywhere. During the reign of Claudius is known to be, oh, I did not write it down, but it's known to be AD about 41 to 54. 
Okay? It's a very specific, 41 to 46, a very specific time frame for that famine. And so a prophet, I know these days we see prophets in the news, we see prophets in Instagram, and prophets like, yeah, Jesus got you. Jesus got your life, and, and you know, you're walking into blessing. But at the time, prophecy was very specific. Okay? And so this very specific prophecy came about a famine. And a famine was prophesied. And the the immediate reaction of the church was very interesting here. See, normally when something happens, normally when a plight or a disaster hits the church, what do you hear the church say? Let's pray. Let's pray for this famine. Let's pray for this disaster. Let's pray for this situation. But what actually happened here is that the church, although they pray every day, they weren't just led to prayer. The church acted. And how did they act? How did the church act? The church acted by giving money. Every single person gave money. And I want, I'm not saying, Jane, are you saying that we need to give money right now? That's not what I'm saying. But the reaction was financial solidarity. There was money sent by every believer, every single believer in the church of Antioch sent money according to their ability. Not every single person sent the same amount of money, but money was sent according to everyone's ability. And in that sense, Financial solidarity was given. So the church's immediate reaction was to collect from every household an appropriate amount of money that they can give, and it was circulated to everyone. That was the immediate reaction. Now, one thing to really keep in mind is that our church right now not necessarily North Boston, but the Church of America does not take that approach. But at the time, when there was a famine, when there was a natural disaster, <laughs> COVID, when there was a natural disaster or something that had hit an area, the immediate reaction of the church was to collect money for the churches in those areas, especially. Because at the time, at the time, so when, when famines happen, the characteristic thing about famines at the time is that food becomes outside of the budget. Food becomes outside of the budget range of, of poor people. So poor people literally cannot afford food, only the rich can. And so the reason for the church giving money out to everyone has to do with um, the church providing that extra amount so that people can still afford their food. And so the church did something very active. So Barnabas and Saul, they go, like if we backtrack a little bit, we see the bigger picture. Barnabas and Saul, they go into Antioch for a year. The Christian turn is coined, right? From that one year of preaching and teaching, right? And the famine hits. And this countercultural Christian group in Antioch, from that one year of being able to live that Acts 2 lifestyle, their immediate reaction is to collect money and send it back to where? Judea. The interesting thing about this is that the church in Antioch is the daughter church and the church in Judea is the mother church. So like, if you consider it in terms of the, co- the, the colonialistic missions movement, it's as though the church in the Philippines The small, budding, charismatic church in the Philippines sent money to the poor American churches in the South. That's the kind of action that's happening. And it's like this upward give back to the churches in Judea that were poor. It's very uncharacteristic of our time. And it took that kind of uncharacteristic Christianity for us to be called Christians to begin with. The fact that we have that badge of Christianity, the fact that we can call ourselves North Boston Korean United Methodist Church, and that we can say I'm Christian in the census, goes back as far as Antioch during this time when they lived an Acts 2 lifestyle and they were actively giving. Now I want to give us an example of this. Have you guys ever gone to a Salvation Army thrift store? 
Have you guys ever gone to a Salvation Army thrift store? They're the cheapest. Sometimes they are the, dink the dinkiest, but they are the cheapest. Okay? And it, there's one thing, there's one thing that's pretty much, actually, I don't know, I haven't seen it much in New England, but there's one thing that should be, should be, ought to be, the same in New York and in Boston. And it's that characteristic, every Christmas, a guy wearing a Santa costume, clinking a, a little carol bell with this little bucket that moves back and forth. You know what I'm talking about. Y'all know what I'm talking about. That red contraption with the bucket that says Salvation Army, and there's this guy hitting a, pe a bell like this that usually looks miserable because he's been doing it for about eight hours, and he's like, alms to the poor, alms to the poor, alms to the poor, and he's like, ding, ding, ding. Do you know what I'm talking about? I hope you guys know what I'm talking about. Maybe you guys have seen it in TV shows if it doesn't exist in Boston. <laughs> Anyways, um, but some something that you guys might not know, Salvation Army is actually a church. Did you know that? Did y'all know that? Salvation Army is a denomination. Like how United Methodists are a denomination, Salvation Army is also a denomination. But their primary function, just like how in Methodism and in Protestantism and in Catholicism, one of the primary functions is missions. One of the denomination's primary functions is alms to the poor. Think about that one. You gotta think about that one. We've gone on yearly missions trips, not while I was here, but before before I came in, North Boston has gone on yearly mission trip, and we still do as a church. We go on yearly mission trip. So Salvation Army held alms to the poor on that level of priority, more than missions itself. And that's why they have entire thrift shops, cafes, and people collecting donations with a Santa costume, looking miserable with the whole getup. Alms to the poor. Alms to the poor. I think growing up, I used to give money to that bucket just because I felt bad for the man. Um, but it changes the whole game when you realize that's Christian. That's Christian. Jane, though, I know I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, it's good to pray. <laughs> Why are you telling us that it's more important for us to be active than for us to pray? I don't want you guys to believe at any point that I'm saying don't pray about COVID, don't pray about the movements in our country, don't pray about the things that are happening because prayer is probably the most powerful thing anybody can ever do. But see, prayer is not a missions donation. Praying for the nations and praying for COVID is not a little donation that you guys are giving in the midst of your prayer life. Prayer is a constant activity that comes along with your salvation. Prayer is something that we ought to be doing for the churches already. Prayer, putting in an extra prayer for somebody is not something that is generous of you. The church, by nature, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the embodiment of Christ on this earth. In our brokenness, as the Holy Spirit transforms us in gospel-driven transformation, as he renews us, as he changes our insides and makes us new beings, as we put off our old self and put on the new self, as we live out the gospel, God is magnified in us on this earth. Not just through miracles and supernatural things, but through us. Christ, while Christ does not walk this earth, we are the closest that many will get to Christ. And it was intended that way. And that's why the church stands in solidarity. Now I know you guys might feel like you've heard this sermon over and over again. But as I explain this application a little bit, I really hope that we can be challenged by the countercultural nature of the Christian church. Number one is that the church stands in encouragement. We are empowered by God and the leaders of the church, but we are also standing in accountability and solidarity with one another. It does not take a leader and a pastor to encourage one another. It should not take a leader to be filled with faith. For the church to be filled. 
That power and authority rests with all of y'all right now. Everybody in this room has the ability to be able to walk out and live out the gospel and be filled to the brim with faith on your own. But we need one another as well to keep each other accountable, to do the, to walk out the good walk together and to fight the good fight together. For those of you guys who might be feeling like you're doing faith alone, you have to understand the significance of what you're feeling and why you're feeling what you're feeling. When you feel like you're doing faith alone, a lot of the times it might have to do with the fact that maybe you're not being encouraged and maybe you're not doing encouraging. Because it takes one another to stay. Our own faith was never meant to be the only factor in our devotion. We are to spur one another onto faith as we work out our salvation, church. We need to be a church that can encourage one another. If you're not having any spiritual conversations with your church right now, you need to stop and ask yourself where you can fit that into your life because God did not create you as a single free agent to be spurred onto faith and greater devotion on your own. That's why retreats are so powerful. If retreats were so powerful just because of the mountaintop experience, then we should all be able to go on personal retreats and have the same amount of fire. But it's the body of Christ coming together that has a spiritual effect on our souls. It is a literal thing that we need. And if you're not doing encouraging, if you're not engaging in conversation, then yes, your devotion might feel dry. And that's not just something that's meant for Sundays, you know? But the second thing, the church stands in solidarity. We help each other out in real ways, not because of morals, but because of God's love. We gotta help each other out in real ways, not because of morals, but because of God's love. We need to walk together without inferiority. The reason why the church of Antioch was able to gather all these arms and send it back to the church of Judea was because the church of Judea, even though the church of Jerusalem is the mother church, the mother church was not superior to the daughter church. There is no superiority in the body of Christ. Regardless of your ethnicity, there is no superiority in the body of Christ. No one church that holds superiority over another church. And it takes humility on both sides to accept that. It's easy for the church of Judea to be like, oh, I don't need your money. It took humility for the church of Judea to take the help that the other church was giving. Similarly, in our own lives, it takes humility to receive help where we need help. Some of us might be in situations where we need help in our own individual lives. It takes humility to receive help from another person. But we need it. And it takes humility for our church to stop being self-centered and self-seeking and give. We learn to give. I want to engage in more of these initiatives as the year progresses. Our March and April initiative for giving was unfortunately interrupted by coronavirus but as soon as things lift a little bit I want us to engage back in, in certain events that we can do to give because that is a very critical component of our living out our salvation okay we are actively the hands and feet finally we are actively the hands and feet and others should be able to name us Understand, church, that the reason for why we are called Christian was by nature something that was countercultural. It was by nature something that was not normal. It was by nature something that was different from the world. If we if we look too much like the world, then our other identifications will be louder than our Christianity. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. And when we are really living out this being filled with faith, working out our salvation, encouraging one another, spurring one another onto faith, then we will be filled with faith ourselves. As, as we work out our salvation, God works in us and he fills our cup. And the ideal situation or the real, the situation that ought to be is that others ought to be able to identify us and say, oh, they are Christian after all. And the inheritance that we have in our identity. 
When I say I'm Korean, I'm saying that thousands and thousands of years of Korean history has led to my existence. I'm saying that I am connected to thousands and thousands of years, generations before me, my ancestors. And when we carry the nameplate of Christianity, when we say that we are Christian, we are identifying with the inheritance that started at Antioch. The church, our, it's a, what we're looking at is something bigger than ourselves. But it's important that we live out the gospel and be the hands and feet of Jesus. We are actively the hands and feet and others should be able to name us. This is all very hard. I don't expect it to be easy. But I think one thing that we really have to consider is where we stand in the midst of everything. Where we stand in the midst of living out the gospel with one another internally and where we stand with being a church externally. Maybe some of us are more uncomfortable with that. Maybe some of us are are afraid to live out the gospel in our world because living out the gospel is hard. And yes, this is an age-old this is an age-old message about living out the gospel. But you have to understand, we are in the midst of COVID. We are in the midst. And, and a lot of us are dying from faith because we are not living out, encouraging one another. We are not actually engaging in spiritual conversations and spurring one another on to stay in the faith. We might not even be engaging in spiritual disciplines. I mean, there is grace for all of us. But there are also cause, it's also a cause and effect situation. You can't expect to be your best spiritually when our comfort has led us to be disconnected to our body. You can't expect it to be the most spiritually healthy. And similarly, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. In a country and a political climate right now, that is confused about Christianity, you can't expect other people to turn to Jesus and be saved if we are not, if we are not claiming our identification and our inheritance and our citizenship. By nature, the church is supposed to be active. But our activity takes a lot of different shapes and forms. Maybe after hearing this, some of you guys are thinking about all the relationships in your life that might not know that you're Christian or might not even know Christ. Maybe some of us are thinking of the ways that you have not given back. Maybe some of us are thinking about us. Maybe maybe some of us are the people that need to be helped in our ministry. For some of us, we're dry.
We hope you were blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.